Welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar live from Stockholm, host city of the United Nations Environment Programme 2022 World Environment Day. I'm Ian Welsh from Innovation Forum and I'll be your host for the next 90 minutes or so. This is the latest in our series where we talk with people who are at the front line in the battle to halt deforestation. We're partnering once again with Everland who, as we heard, have just launched their forest plan with the ambition of eliminating deforestation this decade. Our aim now is to try and bring the forest plan to life by featuring insights from representatives from groundbreaking forest conservation Red Plus projects in Kenya, the DRC, Colombia and Cambodia. We'll be discussing community-based conservation projects and their successes and the challenges in tackling deforestation. Panellists will also discuss how Red Plus projects are working to protect threatened wildlife and funding significant economic development activities for local communities. Now, we're very keen to hear from our audience here in Stockholm and, and online. So do be thinking of your questions and comments as we go. Uh, let me introduce our panellists quickly. I'm delighted to be joined by Joseph M. Wakima and Kara Bront from Wildlife Works Kasigao Corridor Red Plus Project in Kenya. We have Nanette Front, who's with Wildlife Works Ndombe Project, uh, Red Plus Project in the DRC. We have Leader Sukla, who's the Regional Director for Wildlife Works Latin America. We have Charlie E from the Tumring Red Plus Project in Cambodia. We have Rithani Teng from Wildlife Conservation Society in Cambodia and Suana Gauntlet, who's the CEO of Wildlife Alliance in Cambodia. Welcome to you all. Joseph, let me turn to you first. Please start by giving us a brief outline of the Kasigao Corridor Project in Kenya. Thank you very much. Um, so Wildlife Works is a company that is based in the southern part of Kenya, where we are protecting more than 250,000 hectares of woodland forest, together with landowners and communities uh, within uh, the part of Kenya. And uh, currently we are implementing a project called the Kasigao Corridor, Red Plus project, that has been there from the year 2011 up to date. And it has brought a lot of significant impact, positive impact to the people of, uh, who live uh, close to the protected area that we are working with the landowners and communities. Um, this is a unique place where we have uh, forests, we have wildlife, we have community, we have everything that you can imagine that is beautiful um, and it is a precious place that we've all uh, agreed to conserve for this generation and for the coming generation. Okay, so what was life like um, before the project began? Um, life without the project, uh, when the project uh, not yet started, uh, um, due to lack of uh, long-term investments within the Kasiga Corridor Red Plus project area, there are some of the activities that are happening before the project. And uh, some of them were environmental, they distracted the environment like uh, charcoal burning, where people cleared massive forests uh, for charcoal production, uh, which contributed a lot to deforestation within our project area. The activity that was happening before the project was uh, logging, where you know companies from different parts of the nation, that is Kenya, came to do commercial logging which was also affecting uh, you know, our forests and the communities around there. Other activities were like uh, commercial poaching for, you know, for trophies, for subsistence, uh, bushmeat, and uh, such kind of activities, which uh, mm -hmm. they were depleting our forests and our wildlife. Um, so all this contributed a lot to the negative side of uh, where we're living. 
Um, then there's uh, these what we call slash and burn agriculture, where generally people clear massive uh, portions of land that is forest to do unsustainable agriculture. That is more of cutting down everything that is vegetation, opening up of the soil, which is still unsustainable for agriculture. So these are some of the activities that were happening before the project started. Okay. Uh, we'll come to some of the economic developments and opportunities that have been developed um, in Castle Corridor shortly. Um, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about how the community granted their consent for these projects, the whole FPIC process. Can you just talk us through how that worked for your communities? So FPIC is a process that is called free, pre and informed consent. It is more of a decision-making uh, process where you involve uh, local communities uh, who will be affected by the project, uh, making sure that you engage with them, uh, talk to them uh, how the project will work, what will change, what are the, some of the things that uh, they'll be expected to do, what in terms of like a, uh, if you're a project implementer, what you are expected, different roles. So it is a process that brings everyone together from local communities to the government, to the landowners, and trying to go through the whole concept of what is going to happen. So it is a very vital uh, project uh, process, and uh, we've been able to go through it in Kasiga Corridor Red Plus project. Uh, from phase one to phase two, we've sat down with the communities, uh, different uh, groups, governments, stakeholders, telling them what the project will, uh, will come to do, what is their role, and how it will impact in their day-to-day -day lives. So from there, they give you a yes or a no, because uh, it's more of a balancing what, you know, what is important. Do they think it is something that it will create more uh, positive impacts to them, or it is something that will change completely their way of life? So they can gauge after consultation, and from there they give you a yes, and from there you continue with your project. So it's more of a engagement, you know, consultation, bringing people together, sharing ideas. That is what we call DevPick. Is it that change is the thing that people are most concerned about? Is that the thing that you have to, that they need to get across to them, that the change is going to be beneficial? Is that what people are mostly concerned about in this yes. process? Yes. I think most of the people are more concerned with what will change, what are their roles, you know, in terms of uh, the project implementation process. Um, and they would like to see, you know, exactly uh, what are you talking about? What do you want to bring? What will, you know, change on our day-to-day, -day, you know, activities? So it's more of uh, engaging and consulting. Yep. Okay. Um, tell us a bit about some of then of the positive impacts that have resulted from the Red Plus project, the Casigo Corridor. The Casigo Corridor Red Plus project has uh, brought a lot of positive uh, impacts to the local communities around the project area. And uh, through the investments that has been uh, done in conjunction with the communities and landowners, we've seen uh, huge impacts, positive impacts in terms of... Uh, you know, improving education standards uh, to the, you know, to the people around the Casiga Corridor, uh, improved health services, access to better health services, clean and safe water for all. So these are some of the things that have come um, from the project. But again, the ecological benefits, the social benefits, they are numerous. So it has impacted a lot and uh, created a very, very positive change that we've seen. If you take a picture of last 10 years and now, you can see that difference from the forest, from you know, the schools, the hospitals, clean water, it has changed a lot. 
Great. Well, Joseph, thank you very much indeed. I'm sure there's lots we can come back to a little bit later on, but thank you for now. Cara, let me turn to you. Uh, it's clear that deforestation occurs when communities don't have alternative sources of income. They need to be able to value the forests as standing forests rather than as felled forests. What are the economic opportunities that have been introduced in Casago that have given the communities those alternatives? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the the benefits and the the um, the, uh, the economic opportunities that have come from the project are quite broad and diverse, and can be both direct and also indirect. So some of the direct opportunities are things like job creation. So um, within our project, we now have over 400 jobs that are created through things like our greenhouse projects, um, through the community engagement staff, uh, our rangers and, and security staff. Um, and then other direct opportunities come from small-scale sustainable industries that we've set up. So for example, production of garments um, and uh, also of soap. Uh, and then we also then have increased access to economic opportunities from um, the, the work that we do with communities through increased access to market for craft work. So we work with over 1,800 um, predominantly women, but also men as well, um, increasing access to their, to their craft work uh, on a global market um, in conjunction with a local community-based organization. Um, and then there's some of the indirect opportunities that uh, come up from some of the, the community projects that Joseph mentioned. So such things like the infrastructure and the con uh, construction jobs that come up through the project. And then the landowning communities have also um, been able to access financial tools to invest in their livestock and then increasing um, the amount of ecotourism opportunities within the project area as well. So like I said, very diverse um, and yeah, lots of opportunities that have arisen. You mentioned there 400 direct jobs, 1,800 uh, crafters helped. Do you have any idea of the kind of total number of people that have benefited from the project? Um, from all of, I mean, all together, it's a huge project area. So we have over 100,000 people that live within the project area. Um, so they will be either directly benefiting or indirectly benefiting from, from the project. Okay. So when a buyer purchases a verified emission reduction from Casigau, how is the money spent and how are decisions made for the community portion of that spending? So um, once a verified emission reduction is purchased, then um, that then gets split. So the, a third of that income goes directly to the community landowners within the project area. Then Wildlife Works then runs its project operations for the project. So that can be through the community engagement, through the security work, uh, then also through the monitoring and evaluation for the project, for example. And then 50% um, of the project profit then goes towards the community allocation. Uh, so the community allocation gets evenly split between six geographically distinct areas between it, within the whole project zone. Uh, and then within each of those locations, uh, we have a locally elected community uh, committee, which is called a locational carbon committee. And that is elected every two years by the community through a series of meetings called barazas. And um, those community committees have to be, they have to have at least two women on the committees and also two youth representatives. And so those uh, those community committees then receive applications from the wider community about the different projects that they want to invest in. So that can be brought from educational infrastructure, health infrastructure, water projects. And uh, those applications then get processed and um, looked at by the Locational Carbon Committee. 
and they evaluate the, the, the benefit of those projects and the budgets. And then those projects are then put back towards the wider community um, to be ranked in order of their, of their, um, of their priorities at that time, um, addressing the different focal issues that they might be facing. Um, and then once those, those projects have been prioritized, then they get implemented both through a tendering process for construction, um, or it could be, for example, for bursaries. So they'll just go directly out to the schools. So it's almost an, an ongoing process of consent, isn't it? I mean, we talked Very about much. the FPIC process at the beginning, mm -hmm. but it's an ongoing consent yeah. for the projects. And uh, Joseph and the rest of the team from the community department, it's consistent engagement with the wider community. It's a partnership, yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Um, just a reminder to those of you who are online, please do use the Q&A function on Zoom to put your questions uh, to our panellists. And I'll be picking them up here um, on the... Uh, got it right here. I'll be picking them up and putting them to our panellists a little bit later on. Cara, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Ineth, let me turn to you now. Uh, you're with the Wildlife Works uh, Mind Dombey Red Plus project in the DRC. So perhaps start off by giving us a very brief introduction to that project. Okay. Thank you, Ian. Um the Mindombe Red Plus project is located in the territory of Inongo in the Mindombe province. And uh, the project's main activities are in, uh, agriculture's uh, intensification. Uh, we also have uh, schools' uh, constructions. We have uh, uh, have construction. Uh, infrastructures too, and we we do also have uh, biomass inventory, biodiversity inventory. We have uh, also uh, community uh, community inv involvement, and also the well drilling. Okay. And uh, the project area is occupied by the Batua and Bolia people in the north, and we have. Uh, the Basengele uh, in the west and uh, the Tombenzale uh, in uh, the west, the south, I'm sorry. So uh, the wildlife uh, is uh, dominated by elephants, bonobos, and uh, uh, hippos, but we also have the presence of giant pangolins uh, and uh, various species of birds, monkeys, and antelopes. Great. No, thank you. I mean, the Congo Basin, of course, is an extremely important forest, um, second largest standing forest uh, on the planet. What was life like for people living there uh, in the project area before the project began? Before the project began uh, in the Mindombe province, we, the community uh, had very few uh, schools, and kids were studying under the palm trees. And also uh, the, pot, the community did not have uh, enough, uh, they did not have buildings or modern uh, school supplies. Uh, the, the lake was overfished and uh, depleted. And uh, yes, the, the lake was uh, depleted and uh, also, um, the the food security the food security uh, was a big issue there because their sources of food was uh, depended on fishing, hunting, and uh, 
farming cassava in the edges of uh, the forest, which is one of the drivers of uh, deforestation. Thank you. Okay, no, th thank you very much. So, obviously, big developments there, new, more schools, better food security for the local people. So lots of, lots of exciting developments. Um, but what are, and of those developments that you mentioned, an impact, which are the ones that have benefited the community the most? I would say that the schools are the most uh, popular investments in the project because almost all the communities are impacted positively. And this, uh, I would say also that this was uh, the, the, the priority determined by the communities uh, themselves. And uh, also the project has built 12 schools and plans to build 50 more in the next few uh, years. Uh, this is uh, way more than the projects committed to when they, we, start, we began. We committed to 25 schools and now it's uh, 50. We are committed to 50 schools. And uh, also uh, the project has invested in the water well drilling to provide clean drinking water and uh, to help em eliminate uh, the waterborne diseases. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. So the project's now getting significant corporate support. Yes. What does the immediate future of the project look like? The life of uh, the, the future for the project and uh, the communities is very bright based on how we are progressing. It's very bright and uh, the communities, uh, they plan to build more schools in other villages and also uh, they, they they plan to, to build three new hospitals to deliver uh, primary healthcare to the communities. And also uh, the project will fund some large scale uh, developments like uh, uh, cellular service to the forest uh, communities. And also the project is, uh, will invest in a, many more fish ponds, like the one that we have already in production in Lombe, and uh, we'll invest also to restock the, the lake to restore food security. Great, thank you. So yeah. very much like at the, the project in Kenya, lots of interesting developments and economic developments uh, that are really benefiting the local community. Thanks very much indeed, Nanef. Leader, let me tell and turn to you. Uh, you're the regional director for Wildlife Works in Latin America. Perhaps give us a brief introduction to what Wildlife Works is up to in Latin America right now. Sure, Jan. And um, I first want to thank uh, the Innovation Forum for the opportunity to to speak at this event. And um, so, Wildlife Works in Latin America, um, and especially in Colombia, we have been engaged in 12 projects, and uh, eight of them are. USAID-sponsored projects that were nurtured by USAID already since 2013, 2014. So they're, in a way, pioneering red projects in the Colombian Pacific. And they're um, mostly Afro-Colombian communities. These are rainforest-based Afro-Colombian communities that have been in the rainforest for hundreds of years. They've developed a culture around the rainforest uh, and facing many, many challenges, long-suffering communities on the Colombian Pacific. Uh, the RED projects, uh, we've been accompanying them for many, many years. 
helping them get through their first verification, uh, uh, sustainable activities, alternative activities, uh, through the technical aspects of RED and biodiversity monitoring, all of this. And uh, also we are uh, working as partners on four of our own RED projects with uh, partners of local communities, two in the Amazon side of Colombia and two on the Pacific side of Colombia. Um, and those are new. Uh, we're very excited. We're uh, very much gathering speed. And uh, so that's 12 altogether, a lot going on in Colombia. Okay. Um, so we talked before about the, the um, when we were preparing for this, about the Paramos a Bosques program. Tell us a bit about that and why its projects are important. So Palamos y Bosques uh, inherits uh, these, these projects that were already nurtured by USAID uh, uh, in, a previous, uh, in a previous era and, um, and brings them to fruition. And, and that's where we came uh, to the fullest into engagement with the projects. Um, Palamos y Bosques is working on the Pacific Slope of Colombia. That is the Chocó Darien ecoregion. It's one of the most important hotspots in the planet for biodiversity. Lots of endemic plants animals, orchids, uh, unique butterflies, unique birds. Uh, it's truly like in an incredible rainforest, one of the wettest rainforests on Earth. And it's also a very significant cultural landscape. Um, the Afro-Colombian peoples of the Colombian Pacific has an, have a unique culture with many elements that are di directly descendant from Africa that they managed to preserve and at the same time adapt them to a very unique and different ecosystem. Um, and the significance is that it, it has enabled the conservation of both aspects, not just the biodiversity of the area, but also the strength of these communities. Um, the, um, the projects are really have come to fruition. They're selling offsets already for a few years, since 2000 and late 2019, and uh, they're really changing communities for the better. Uh, the significance of the project as a pilot that enabled a set of pilot projects that enabled Colombia to foresee what projects would look like, what they, how they could envision uh, Colombia incorporating red projects into their national strategy, into the way in which they achieve their climate goals, is difficult to, to, to exaggerate what the importance of these projects has, has been, both for the local communities but also at the national policy level. Okay. Let's think a bit more about how it works in practice then. How is the distribution of verified emission reduction credit sales benefited the communities in Colombia? I'm glad you asked this question because the other day we were talking, we've had this comment in several different forms from people from the community. And um, in Colombia in the 1990s, a law was passed that it called Law 70, and it uh, recognized formally and legally to the uh, collective territories, to the Afro-Colombian peoples in the rainforest. And the law gave, the, the people tell us, you know, the law gave us the land, they gave us the self-governance capability, but they didn't give us resources. We had no resources to implement the authority that we have, the capacity to self-determine what we wanted to do, how we wanted to live in our homeland. And um, that's what RED is enabling. That's what the carbon offsets are enabling. These people, for the first time, are having sufficient resources to make collective decisions and be protagonists of their own collective destiny in a way that was not possible before. That enables them to make decisions that save the rainforest, that protect it, that, that manage it in a way that is sustainable in the long term. And, and where they can begin to provide solutions to the many people that live in each of these territories. So it's truly been a... a, a 
a tool, an instrument to make their own will happen. That is the key, isn't it? It's allowing communities to have finance to do what it is they want to do. Yeah, and um, I mean, I want to I talk a little bit to the specifics of this. What this means is um, these communities are, are well organized in terms of, of being advocates for themselves. They have long been able to lobby in front of the government. To uh, you know, They, they have a, a good level of political organization, but they haven't had to uh, or they haven't had the resources to, to implement some of the changes they would like to see on their own. Now communities are going through a yearly plan. They have an assembly uh, for each territory. They have an assembly yearly. They put together a yearly plan, and then they begin to invest uh, the carbon resources in things like, uh, first of all, governance. I'm, some of these communities need to have a stronger government structure, and they recognize that, and they invest in their own governance. They get training. They invest in things like accounting, for instance, like basic things that you need for good governance. Uh, they invest in infrastructure, docks, um, uh, the capacity to keep um, access canals free so that they can go. Most of these communities are accessed by river. Um, they invest in, the inf in basic infrastructure that they need to get some of their products to market at a higher value added. So acai, which is this fruit that many people might have in a milkshake or, or here, like a superfood, is produced in the Pacific. It's called naidi, but you have to bring it to market very fresh. If you don't have the right infrastructure, you can't send it to market quickly. You can't capture that value. Um, basic things like plantains, sugarcane, uh, cocoa, cacao, uh, the, uh, the project has enabled them to uh, improve the techniques, improve the marketing of those things, uh, involve women's cooperatives in some of these production uh, in many of the different territories. And it has just made a tremendous difference in terms of the value that they can capture, the yield that they get from the already deforested areas, and the capacity to let go of other activities. The Colombian Pacific, has 17% of Colombia's rainforests, but produces 54% of the timber that is commercially sold from the forests of Colombia. So you can imagine the intensity of production, but it's actually been a very marginal livelihood for the guys, and they're typically guys, that cut the trees. So the projects have now given many of these guys alternative jobs. In fact, some of these jobs are in overseeing the forest itself, in measuring carbon stocks in the forest and, and doing monitoring. So the project generates a, the project generate a, a significant amount of alternative jobs directly and a whole lot of impacts indirectly. Communities are choosing time and time again to give scholarships to the kids, to improve schooling locally, but also to send the kids out to the cities. And they're, they're looking with, you know, in the long term, they want to have more people with more capacity to make more things happen for their communities. And education, healthcare are some of the big things that they invest in as well. You're very telling your points you made around the alternatives to, to logging. Um, that's what this is all about, is giving people opportunities and to value their forests by not destroying them. Exactly. Okay, um, let's talk, talk a bit about um, government. How has the Colombian government supported Red Plus? Well, I think that the Colombian government um, Back in 19, uh, 2017, uh, when they imp implemented the carbon tax, they created a domestic tax. And already then, they actually uh, uh, recognized Vera and other the volunteer 
uh, voluntary market standards as, uh, as complying with Colombian regulations. So you could meet your tax, your carbon tax obligation either by paying the tax or by using these voluntary market credits for compliance within Colombia. So um, that in and of itself created uh, a space where you have, I mean, it's not a very high price, but it is a price and it provided a floor to develop the, this voluntary market uh, credits in Colombia. Now, many of these projects in Colombia are, are considered quite attractive and the international market is buying these offsets. And um, it is uh, the fact that the Colombian um, legal infrastructure recognizes, acknowledges projects, they're part of the nested uh, jurisdictional red strategies and so on of the country as per resolution 1447, um, uh, gives uh, the, the projects a very high level of legitimacy. He gives them um, a legal uh, regulatory certainty, if you will, a, a significant level of regulatory certainty, which is very helpful. And also more and more, the Colombian government is realizing how helpful the voluntary uh, support of, of companies from around the world is helping them achieve more reductions. It's helping the country achieve uh, a, a greater lowering of deforestation and thereby getting closer to attaining the goals that they have set for themselves in front of the United Nations. This in a place where there are some headwinds, there are some pressures that would increase the rate of deforestation, but the voluntary market is one of the forces that is fighting in the right direction, helping us lower it. Certainly a very interesting approach that the Colombian government are taking, one that could perhaps be replicated elsewhere. Um, leader, thanks very much indeed for now. Um, audience, please, here and online, do be thinking of your questions. I have two already from our online audience. Thank you very much for those. Do keep them coming, um, but I'll be wanting questions from our audience here as well. So do be thinking about your comments and questions as we go. Charlie. Welcome. Um, you're from the Tumring Red Plus project in Cambodia. Start by giving us a brief introduction to the project, please. Thank you. Um, hi, everybody. Um, Tumring Red Plus project is a uh, project that is a kind of collaboration between the Cambodian government with the Korean government. And um, it uh, covers an area of more than 67,000 hectares. And if we talk about the forest area, it has uh, about 42,000 hectares. And um, actually this project, uh, uh, the location is chosen because of uh, this area has a high uh, rate of deforestation. Uh, if we, um, we studied about the deforestation rate between 2010 and 2014, there was more than 3% of deforestation. And if compared to the annual deforestation rate, it was only just more than 2%, so it's just higher than the national one. So that's why the government of Cambodia, especially the Forestry Administration, uh, with the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, decided to um, initiate the Red Plus project there. And we got uh, support, especially financial support, from the Korea Forest Service, uh, the uh, Republic of Korea. So we joined together and we started the project uh, at the end of the, uh, 2014. And uh, the project uh, area covers uh, with the size of a very big forest and it has like kind of uh, evergreens, semi-evergreen and also the deciduous forest. Lots of uh, wildlife species there and also the local community um, in general like more than 
250,000 people have been benefiting from that uh, project uh, as well. Okay, um, <coughs> thanks very much indeed. So the projects have been developed in cooperation with the South Korean government. Um, how then has the project gone about implementing conservation work on the ground and crucially, as we've heard so far, engaging the local people? Yes. Um, actually, this uh, the project is a collaboration uh, between the Cambodian government with the Korean government. And Korean government is one of the development partners and it helps uh, Cambodia with lots of sectors, including forestry. So um, actually, since 2008, the, the Cambodian government started the Red Plus project, the National Red Plus project, and they assess every part of the country. And uh, it came to the Kabongtum province, uh, which is uh, uh, the, the Red Plus project area. And we got that idea, and we just want to start a project, rep, uh, the Red Plus project there. And so the Korean government also came along and discussed that together. And uh, later we agreed together, and we signed MOU together. And later, we, we, we started the project uh, in 2015. And along with that, we also had lots of uh, meetings with the community. Uh, we got a uh, FPIC, like we discussed before. Uh, we got a process of agreement. We have lots of uh, meetings, workshops, uh, to make sure that uh, the community and the local authority understood about the Red Plus project, what is it about, and so later they, they, they agreed, they understood about that and they agreed and um, we got the consent from them and we started the project. Okay. Um, tell me a bit about what would be happening uh, if the Red Plus project wasn't there. Um, the Red Plus project plays a very important role there, especially in reducing the rate of deforestation. Before the project started, like small land conversion for agriculture happened a lot and very big scale and lo lo lots of areas of uh, cleared area and like the people cleared it and then they plant cashew, uh, cassava, also rubber as well so because that's a kind of evergreen forest uh, and rainforest that's the fertility of the soil is really really good and they can uh, got lots of production of cashew, rubber and cassava as well so it happened everywhere across the project sites. So that's uh, the, the biggest challenge for us as well. And also the forest, like uh, the logging, illegal logging, it happens across the project area as well. Like the people locked it and uh, sell it with a high um, price of, uh, like they get lots of money uh, by logging and uh, just get the trees out. And also the fuel wood collection as well, it happened across the project area, lots of charcoal kilns and also the people in Cambodia like, use lots of logs to burn uh, for cooking and also for uh, charcoal for restaurant as well. So that happened a lot uh, before the project started. And lastly, uh, also forest fire, especially in uh, the deciduous forest, uh, while the people clear and cut and, uh, for, agriculture, for agricultural purpose and also they, they cook uh, for the food while they are traveling, while they are searching for animals, uh, for wildlife. So they set the fire and then the fire uh, burns uh, so huge uh, areas of forest as well. Thank you. So, I mean, you've been quite clear that there are challenges then uh, in this project. Um, and, you know, they've been widely known. Um, but you're addressing them and that's great to see. So how 
do you go about meeting these challenges? You mean you listed you know, the fuel wood collection, the illegal logging, you know, forest fires, the um, creation of plantations. What are the keys to addressing these challenges? Thank you. Um, after receiving, like, uh, we're knowing about this uh, drivers of deforestation, these challenges um, together with the Cambodian government and the uh, Korean government, like the representative from, uh, from the Korean Forest Service, we discussed that together and the project management unit, the project team came about with uh, uh, strategic objectives in order to address the drivers. So the first one is about land tenure security which is uh, very important, like uh, we help the community, especially the community forests, to register so they can have their own land title. And it protects uh, uh, the land for the whole community from being chopped off or from being cleared. So it is uh, really, really important. It's a, a big success for us as well. So we, uh, we got one, uh, the land title, and we are going to go for another 13. So we have 14 community forests uh, across the project area. So we've got one as a lesson learned as a, a pilot. So we are going to go for another 13 and we are sure that we will get that as well. So that's the first one. The second one is about uh, law enforcement. So law enforcement is very important. Uh, we work with uh, the local forestry officers and together with uh, soldiers and also uh, military police that we get uh, engaged together and we work together with a village, with a chief, commune chiefs, so that uh, we patrol, patrol across the project areas, and we got support from the project, and we support them, and uh, they patrol across the project areas as well. And additional, in, in um, we also worked with uh, the, we call the Community Forest Management Committee. They have the representatives, they work together, they, they work as a group to patrol across uh, their uh, community forests as well. And the third one is about uh, livelihood <coughs> development programs. We work with our subcontractors, uh, for example, like the provincial department, um, so that we, we, give, we give them modern agricultural techniques uh, and transfers, like um, uh, new knowledge to the communities so that uh, they, they can get a sustain, uh, sustainable agricultural practice. And also we form the agriculture, agriculture cooperative as well, where the community um, they have their own team as well, so that uh, they can collect all the like the products like cassava, like cashew from the members and uh, collect to that uh, cooperative, and they can get a higher price that uh, the project supported uh, that uh, activity as well. And in addition to that, we also um, have a kind of uh, support like resin, so. We have resin trees, lots, uh, thousands and thousands of resin trees across the project area. So the resin uh, are very important for them to, to get the benefit. Uh, we call it the non-timber forest products. So it is not timber, it's the kind of resin that get out of the timber. So the people can uh, collect that and they can sell it with higher price as well. So we also support that and we also form an enterprise for them so that they can uh, go along uh, all year round to collect and get the uh, income. Um, it, uh, another one is, an, uh, another objective is also we have the like uh, participation program. We try to have the workshop, we try to have meetings in order to disseminate about forestry law um, so that uh, the people there, they understand about the consequences of uh, offending. Uh, the forest, like they clear the forest, they chop the forest and they get the, the timber. So we try to disseminate, we try to 
make uh, help them understand about forestry law as well, and also in general knowledge and understanding about climate change, uh, about the importance of forests as well. And also we also work with the, the local local government and sub national government as well about the in migrants um, to the project area because the project area has a big uh, forest area soil fertility like I told you so the people just come in from uh, other provinces from other districts so they come along and they just cut and clear and uh, so the project just work with the village chief the commune chief and also district uh, governor to make sure that they can control that and they they will uh, they they uh, educate those new uh, cameras to, to to make sure that they they will, they will not clear it and if they clear it, they will um, get like file a complaint to the court or something like that. And the last one uh, is about project monitoring, effective project monitoring. So we work with our partners. Um, we, we also have uh, subcontractors uh, as well. So we did the survey about the wildlife uh, presence uh, across the project area and we found that it, it has been increasing and uh, we also put uh, camera traps there. We saw lots of uh, rare species, endangered species uh, big mammals, small mammals, birds. So that's uh, quite a success, quite a happy thing that uh, we, uh, we've done and we support uh, to this uh, project as well. Great. No, thank you very much indeed. Um, very comprehensive run through the, the project. But no, thank you very much indeed. Brittany, let me turn to you now. Welcome to you. Uh, you're uh, National Strategic Manager, National Strategic Manager rather, uh, with Wildlife Conservation Society in Cambodia, and you're also involved in the Kiosima Red Plus project. Perhaps start, as our previous panels, just give us a little bit of an introduction to the Kiyosima Red Plus project. Well, yeah. Thank you, and hi, everyone. Yeah. Uh, Kiyosima Wildlife Sanctuary is located in the eastern plain of Cambodia. It works quite remote, and um, it is um, covering around uh, nearly uh, 3,000 uh, hectares. It's a much of the... Um, Hilly green forest, semi-evergreen forest, and a wetland, as well as the uh, grassland. And the uh, Kaosima uh, Wildlife Sanctuary, uh, through the survey, uh, revealed that this biodiversity richness, and it covers 80% of the global critical endangered uh, black uh, sand duke and endangered species of the uh, yellow gibbon. Uh, yeah. And also the Kaosima is a home to um, indigenous Bunong communities and um, who depend their livelihood on the um, uh, forest and the natural resources. And um, the by like the uh, these areas is a uh, face some of the um, challenges uh, as a frontier of the deforestation, and before um, uh, the before the project is um, starting, this project is the uh, we call the logging concession, and uh, through uh, the government of Cambodia, see this uh, important place and uh, important for biodiversity and as well as the important for um, community livelihood. So uh, the, com uh, the government have uh, established this uh, area as the 
conservation or protected area uh, in uh, around 2002. And uh, under the Ministry uh, of um, Agriculture, Forestry and uh, Fishery. And um, the, for WCS, we have uh, support this project um, since um, early uh, around uh, 2018, uh, 2008, and but with limited budget. And uh, we see this uh, kind of the important side. So the Red Plus project is starting in 2010 um, uh, for the uh, improving the management of the Gaussima. And we see that uh, uh, through our implementation, we got some of the um, success through the project, like uh, we uh, provide some of the um, uh, rights to the, uh, provide land tenure right to the local community as the uh, community uh, land title. And also establish the community uh, protected area so the community can have the right to the resource and improving their livelihood. Okay, um, I was going to ask you then, just perhaps give us a little bit more detail as to how the project has specifically helped uh, Indigenous people secure their land rights. What's, what's, what's the process been and how has the project helped specifically? Um, yeah, uh, uh, the project is helped the community um, access to the land right. Since the beginning of the project, so uh, we consider uh, the land right is important for the local community. So uh, the project is starting to um, uh, uh, help the community to legal uh, registration of the communal land title. So the community have the right to um, uh, natural resource as the um, uh, because the communal land title have um, like uh, five uh, category of land, so they have the reserve land, uh, spiritual forest, and the agriculture, uh, agriculture for agriculture. So um, we have to support um, uh, the legal registration. It's kind of the cure their land right, and as well as the. Um, we uh, establish the community protected area, so the community have the rights to um, uh, rights to the resource uh, and also uh, their livelihood. Great. Well, thank you. Um, change then. Um, what have been the most significant changes that you've seen for these communities? Is is it the right to the access of the land, the land tenure plan, is that the most significant change you've seen or is there other, other things as well? Yeah, uh, there are some of the changes we can see in um, two things. So uh, the first thing is like uh, regarding to the communities. So um, first, yes, the access to the um, access to land, right, is um, uh, we can see the change. So the community have to secure their land rights. And secondly, uh, the community have the, um, 
have the um, a kind of uh, self identifies the community um, development uh, to uh, have to access to clean waters, education, and the um, uh, health. So, and the, uh, thirdly, the change perspective of the community for um, uh, value of the forest to keep the forest standing. So they uh, see that uh, the, to keep the forest standing, uh, they can get the income benefit from the uh, carbon cell, income from the carbon cell. So uh, because the uh, cell of the carbon cell uh, uh, in the calcium is given directly to the community, so they change perspective that um, uh, to keep the forest standing so they can have the money for the improving their livelihood as well as the community development. And uh, secondly, uh, regarding the um, biodiversity, so uh, we can see that uh, compared to uh, baseline scenario, we expect that is uh, most of the biodiversity uh, uh, will be lost. Uh, however, during the project support, we can see that um, the biodiversity, uh, especially the uh, indicator species uh, like um, black sand duke and the uh, gibbon as the endangered species is remain stable and some of the species like uh, green peafowl is increased. So um, as the same is a whole of uh, 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 world population individual uh, remaining in the Kaosema. Great. Well, thanks. Thank you very much indeed. Um, lots of really interesting stuff there. Do keep the questions coming, uh, online audience. Uh, keep them short. Uh, easier to for me to interpret them and put them to our panel. And do in the room, everyone be thinking about your questions. We'll be coming to them very shortly. Just a reminder, we're running through till uh, till 3 p.m. Uh, Central Central European time. So another still got uh, 40 minutes or so to go. Suana. Let me turn to you. Thank you for your patience. Um, and we, um, our, our final, last but definitely not least, uh, of, our, of our panelists. Um, you're CEO of Wildlife Alliance uh, in Cambodia. I wondered if you might want to think about things a bit more generally in terms of drivers of deforestation. We've heard quite a few of them already from our panel. Are there any other deforestation drivers in Cambodia or elsewhere that you think we need to be talking about as well? Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, I think one of the, the greatest, uh, the fastest growing threat, <clears throat> including in South America, DRC, uh, so the Congo Belt and Southeast Asia, is the drive to acquire land for land speculation and to sell it illegally. So most of these forests are state land, especially in Cambodia. It's all state land. And Everyone is hurrying to cut as much forest by bulldozer, by chainsaw, hiring anybody they can so they can sell it under the table. And with the agreement, the tacit agreement of local authorities, commune leaders, district leaders, often province leaders, which is state for the U.S., uh, you know, even for the little signature on the sales uh, contract, even if it's in the corner, 
And that is the biggest driver of deforestation that we have seen versus in the beginning was, as my colleagues have mentioned, charcoal production, you know, increase the farm holders, agriculture land, uh, commercial poaching. A lot of that has diminished and is now uh, on the front line as an economic development driver for large corporations and businessmen. Okay. Um, what about um, more general extents of deforestation? What are you seeing? I know you've done some research into this. Where are the key, across the tropics, uh, the key areas where you know, there are new areas of deforestation that perhaps we've not been aware of? And, and what are the kind of dangers there, do you think? The new areas of deforestation. Yeah. Well, well, not just telling you, the areas of key deforestation. Sorry, can you repeat your question? Sorry. That, <laughs> rather than it, well, what I'm interested in is the kind of extent of deforestation that perhaps we're not aware of. I know this is something you've been talking ah, about. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Um, so w where are these areas and what are the kind of things that okay. are a little bit, you know, that we're not being hearing about correctly? Right. I think one of the facts that is not well known is that we have unfortunately destroyed 50% of the tropical forest already. Wildlife Alliance has done hundreds of hours of GIS uh, analysis, and we've come up with this really staggering fact. Half of our global watersheds are destroyed. And because of this, the temperature, we're talking about global warming in general, and we know it's, it's in principle caused by CO2 emissions, but a fact that's not as well known is that when you cut, an, let's say a hectare of tropical forest, the temperature on the ground rises six degrees centigrade immediately. And if you, you, you clear a larger area, it won't rain there for at least nine months. So it has a direct impact on rainfall. NASA has done an amazing job in demonstrating the extent of climate change due to tropical deforestation in Brazil, in the Congo Basin, in Southeast Asia, which influences the rainfall in the Northern Hemisphere. Everybody knows nowadays through the news that the air around the planet is drier and is causing wildfires everywhere. Um, the, the, the issue is that because the, the tropical forests were our great watershed before, they used to emit humidity and cool air traveling around the planet. And now, instead of humidity and cool air, it's dry air. So you can see how it creates havoc in our global rainfall and our global climate. So the most urgent thing is to do more red projects that can stabilize, help stabilize what is left. We're, we're all, this, yeah, I think we, <laughs> as, red, as red project implementers, we are very aware of this and we're working as fast as we can to reduce deforestation in our projects. As panelists here, we represent the highest impact red projects in the world. So we are all very grateful to our corporate sponsors, our corporate partners, who have been buying the carbon offsets of our projects. Without you, we simply could not stop deforestation. The projects could not afford the cost of ranger protection. These are the guys in the field who stopped the bulldozers and stopped the chainsaws. We could not afford the cost of livelihoods. We could not be building sustainable factories to give jobs to entire villages. We could not be building modern agriculture systems that provide income to the poorest slash and burn families who now have transferred to sustainable agriculture and so on. And a, a very important element is also education. 
Uh, my colleagues mentioned education, school building. Uh, what we're doing also in the Southern Cardamoms is providing scholar university scholarships to very poor students who otherwise would never have access to higher education. So thank you to all of our corporate sponsors, and we need more of you to help combat deforestation quickly before 2030. Suana, yes. you mentioned there the corporates that are now beginning to buy uh, verified emission reduction credits um, to help keep the forest standing. What's your sense about the way that business is now thinking in terms of buying carbon credits like that? Uh, what are you seeing? What's your sense in terms of the acceptance of business around the beneficial role of the voluntary carbon markets? Well, one of the things that, I'm, that I have observed is that in the north, let's say in the Sweden, uh, Germany, France, of course the UK, there's a much, much larger awareness and uh, companies are coming on board very fast. In uh, Southeast Asia, it's not the case. The, the, the driver is still uh, profit. Let's make profit as fast as we can. One of the roles that Wildlife Alliance fulfills in our partnership with the government is to try to fight this drive for more profit. We, we, we do a lot of negotiations and a lot of diplomatic outreach with corporations, the highest corporations in the country, who are, always give excuses that the forest that they are clearing is only a small piece and it's already degraded so it doesn't, won't make a difference. So they're putting huge special economic zones there, which of course make a huge difference. Plus, can you, you think, if these businessmen are doing that in Cambodia, more businessmen are doing that in Brazil, others are doing this in, in the Congo Basin. So it, it, it's a million hectares of, it's, it's the size of, I think, I think it's 100,000 football fields a day are being cleared of tropical forest. It's huge. So yes, answer your question, yes, in the northern countries. And having said all that, the Cambodian government is also uh, much more committed than it used to be. Uh, the, the, uh, it's one of the leading countries that has fulfilled all of its UNF, triple C obligations, uh, starting with the Red Roadmap, uh, following with the forest uh, deforestation levels, and so on, and Cambodia is the one and only country in Asia selling carbon, selling VERs. So we, we want that country to uh, continue its commitment, which is strongly supported by the Prime Minister, by the way. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, um, I'd like to turn to some questions. Um, we have a question straight here, um, straight away in the, from our audience. In, we have a microphone, I hope, please. In the front, right. Down the front. There we go. Thank you very much. So, sir, give us your name and who you represent, please. And yes, sure. it is on. And keep the question short, please. Very well. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Beto Borges with the Community Initiative for the Strengths. Really pleased to be here. Great uh, presentations. I have a question, um, perhaps to you, leader, um, if others want to speak on it as well. Uh, we hear a lot about the integrity of offsets, uh, social environmental integrity of offsets. So, leader, could you compare and contrast um, what is really the best uh, for co local communities, indigenous peoples' local communities, in relation to the mandated Cancun safeguards, FPIC, and in particular uh, carbon ownership rights? So, where do they fare better? 
in programs that are led by governments, such as jurisdictional RED or carbon-based projects as well. Thank you. Very good question. Yeah, it's a, it's a very um, uh, pointed question. <laughs> um, so, you know, what? when we work in the voluntary market, the standards that we work with, uh, such as, as VERAS and the VCS and the uh, uh, Climate uh, Community and Biodiversity Standard, um, really mandate very strong free prior and informed consent. And moreover, um, they uh, not only, uh, like, like uh, as, as Joseph showed, not only is it a process that happens at the beginning of the project, but also continues to happen as resources arrive from sales of carbon offsets and communities have to decide what to do with these resources and mechanisms are created to involve the women, to involve young people, to involve people like the elderly that are sometimes excluded from other traditional structures because it has to be inclusive. Um, that works really well at the project level. Uh, in Latin America, or in many, many parts of Latin America, what we, we have are uh, indigenous peoples, Afro-Colombian peoples, other, other community or com communal organizations that have a level of self-government, but they're still too granular to, um, to, to in some, at some level, to expect the government, especially from large countries like Colombia, Peru, Brazil, to be able to engage effectively and efficiently in a, 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 at that depth of consent, at that depth of engagement. When, when you talk about the Cancun safeguards, you want free, prior, and informed consent to be real. You want the community, not just the, the head of the community, you want the whole community to know about the project, to know what they're getting into, to, uh, to understand the benefits and the commitments. They're making commitments to save their forest. Do you really want to save your forest? We don't want to partner with you if you don't want to save the forest. It has to be in your heart. It has to be in who you are that the forest is protected because otherwise you're not going to be a good Red Plus partner. This is not a project for three years. It's a project for 30 years and then some. It's generations. And um, so that consent, that free prior and informed consent is so fundamental. And what we find with, at least in, in our region, is that the communities have long wanted to protect their forests better and they have made painful trade-offs where they get short-term economic gain by giving up some of these long-term conservation of the forest. And now the carbon financing comes in and gives them the alternative that enables them to make that vision, to make that, that cultural imperative to protect their homeland forest a reality. But to say yes to that, the question has to be posed to the community at large. And to this day, we have not found a jurisdictional scale project, or at least I haven't found it, that has been able to go that deep to get that consent. To the, po to the point where you go to the ground and, and you ask, people in the villages and you ask people in the hamlets like you know did you hear about this jurisdictional project where you asked about it did you have a chance to put your opinion forward and the answer tends to be no whereas with the project because it's a more granular more more zooming in into specific area um, then the commitment is real from the beginning and I think that's part of the reason why the projects work because we engage at the ground level not at the bureaucratic level or at the policy level which is really important and jurisdictional you know, we do believe in jurisdictional nested red, where the red projects are part of the toolkit that makes a jurisdictional project work. We're committed to this. We believe it works. We have shown that it works. Um, yet, 
uh, if, if, if I may say so myself, it is the existence of projects that work within the jurisdiction that enable the rest of the jurisdiction, which might not be part of a project, to look and say, oh, that's what this is about. The projects make the action that needs needed real because it shows the action on the ground. And if anything, it enables a jurisdictional project to be more about informed consent at large because there are illustrations, examples, uh, vivid uh, ways in which you can see what the jurisdictional project is aiming to do. Um, I mean, I, that's a long answer, Beto, but the, uh, at a fundamental level, the, I, I am convinced, both because of the capacity to get, reach much more deeply in the ground, but also because of the sort of much bigger focus that, that the systems put in us, like, you know, the uh, community climate and biodiversity um, system to get verified year after year after year. They come and they audit us and they check that these safeguards are being met, that communities are really benefiting and that they are protagonists of this decision making. Okay, thank you, Leader. A comprehensive answer, as you said. Um, let me turn to a question online. Um, and the question here, I think it's really important, is asking how to Im inspire and involve young people in, in, in the projects. When you bring together, bring in the finance, how do you in engage uh, young people in these projects? Uh, Joseph, do you want to kick off? What, briefly, if you would, how do you engage specifically young people? And, and does that encourage them to remain in the communities? Yeah, I think it's important, uh, number one, to engage young people because uh, they're the majority mostly in uh, the places that we come from. And um, the best way to do it is to see what they love and, you know, marry into it. Like in our place, we, people love football. Football is everything. So through sports, <laughs> we, are, we can easily yeah. engage young people through football <laughs> matches, you know, where we can talk in between the matches, after the matches. We can consult each other. So different avenues through theatre art. Uh, you know, it's very hard to sit with young people, maybe in Africa, I'll say in Kenya, and have a lecture of two hours uh, talking about Red Plus. But when you engage with them in art and sports and social media, then it becomes so easy and they get involved. Yes, and th thanks for bringing up football. Um, uh, as Scotland <laughs> were knocked out of the World Cup last night, I was hoping that football would <laughs> come up. <laughs> but um, it's true. I mean, obviously, kids are going to be more engaged in football than they are going to be in, in Red Plus. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Would anyone else like to come in on that about the importance of engaging young people in the communities? No? Okay, well, let's move on then. Uh, let's go back to the room. We have a question over here. And as I said, brief question, please. I'll do my best. Josh Tostison from Everland. Hello. Thank you, everybody. I'm going to ask a hard question. Um, so... The carbon markets are doing very well. And what's now beginning to come is a level of resource that we have all who've been working in this field for a long time, we've been dreaming of this day. Yes. And now this day has come where an unprecedented level of financial resources are coming to the ground. Um, and this is creating what I, I'll call a high class problem. It's a good problem to have, to challenge, which is um, 
how are we going to work effectively on the ground with communities to handle this new level of resource that's coming? Are there special challenges that you see with success? Good question, Josh. Thank you very much indeed. Um, who'd like to have a go at that one? Karen, do you want to talk about that? Because it's success on the ground, the kind of challenge now, because here, yeah. you know, we've been talking about this for some time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now we've got to get on with it. Yeah, I mean, what's great is the framework is already there. And it's been there, especially with our project for a long time. We've been on, on the ground working for 11 years now. And so the framework's already there. So increased investment just means more opportunities for, for a larger community number. So um, it's a case of we, we're there ready to work. So yeah, please con continue. Um, and yeah, and that's, and that's, it for, like that, that's for communities, but also for, for wildlife. And then um, we've also then potentially got the opportunity to, to expand that to other areas that, that, that need it as well. Thank you. Charlie, do you want to comment on that one? The kind of, here we are, this is the time, let's get on with it. Yes, um, actually the, the fund that uh, we got from the carbon credit sales are very important and the involvement of the community in deciding that uh, where it should go is also crucial. And uh, we used to get a consent from the community as well and uh, they agreed with us and so we, ju we have a meeting with them and we just ask them, what do you want uh, from the project? Uh, and we've got uh, the fund and then just list out and they have a group uh, together, uh, have a, um, separate groups and then uh, they, discuss they, they discuss what they want and then they write it down. And by receiving that, um, we also uh, plan, like we have a work plan for annual or uh, two years or three years together. So by using uh, the fund from the project and um, later, uh, we found that it, it works very well, and um, the the problem almost disappeared. Like because the things, the activities that we did, uh, we got from them. So it's uh, the, the best way that we use the resource that we got from the credits, and it it works very well at the ground level. Great, thank you. Um, let, let me turn to another question. Do any more questions from the room? I'll, I'll turn to another question online. Um, quite a specific question. This. The, all, the, all the projects we've talked about have, have boundaries. And the question um, asks about the need for boundary enforcement to protect against the agents of deforestation that we've talked about, the poaching, the illegal logging and everything else. Um, and how do you balance that against the underlying social drivers that fuel these illegal activities? So how do you deal with the kind of boundary issue? Um, Suana? Sure, I'll be happy to take that question. Uh, dealing with the boundary issue, we have actually quite a lot of experience in this Wildlife Alliance working with the government since we started the project in 20, so 2001. Uh, because when we arrived, there were about 37 to 40 forest fires every single day uh, for land encroachment, for grabbing land and selling it to the soldiers or the Chinese illegally. We had uh, 38 elephants killed, 28 tigers slaughtered. Uh, and it was all due to the lack of boundaries. So we uh, worked closely with government at all levels, with all the communities, and it took us two years. But what we did, we started with the main freeway going through the project, but it was an access, it was a major access into the forest, and we achieved zoning of that boundary over 140 kilometers. Every village, because you, it's hard to do the red boundary itself, the big issue is the community. You have to zone and demarcate with visible posts the communities themselves, 
and then they have enough land and private land to develop uh, their, their uh, either ecotourism or agriculture or hotels. <coughs> and then outside of that boundary, it is strictly protected forest. So we've been very successful in curbing the appetite of the commune chiefs for selling land illegally in the forest through these agreements. So they have to sign on these maps. It's signed at all levels, community, commune chief, district governor, and provincial governor. And that way, when a, someone claims a piece of illegal forest for their land and the commune chief signs on it, you can take the commune chief to prison. But you don't take him to prison, of course. You go to him and you negotiate and you say, what would you prefer? Would you prefer going to prison? Or would you prefer to revoke this signature of yours and tell this person that it's not their land? So it worked every time. <laughs> <laughs> it worked every time. And then you become great friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I want to go to another question uh, online. Um, a lot of questions have been asking about some of the specifics of around projects, but a particular question asks, um, how do you balance using the revenues to generate um, direct local employment, so, so employment, paying people to, for with new jobs, uh, versus funding more community broad uh, initiatives that will perhaps develop, uh, generate benefits for the community more generally? So specific benefits for individuals versus benefits for community. How do you get that balance? Leader, do you want to quick go at that one well the i mean i think that the the best judge of that if if the if the governance mechanism is truly inclusive it'll come at a good balance on that it'll come at a good balance of things that benefit the community at large and specific opportunities to create alternative livelihoods for for more specific people but also bear in mind that um the project uh a project is an ongoing activity. It's not something that you set up once and, it's, and it, it, you, you, call, you have staff, you have to create a project team. You have to have people that monitor biodiversity. You have to have people that do, uh, in many, many communities choose to have, uh, in Colombia, for example, they choose to set up uh, forest monitors or forest rangers, however you want to call them. And these are not optional. You, you, you know, the community sees the need to create these jobs. Uh, often, the community, the forest rangers are the, the bad guys that we were talking about before, like, because those are the guys that know how to be in the forest. The loggers, the illegal hunters, those are the guys that love being in the forest. They are the, they are the best, the best, one of the best ways to take care of them, actually, is to, to repurpose them, <laughs> if you will, into forest rangers. But, um, uh, so, see the balance here. Like, in, in many cases, you try to offer the most direct jobs to the people that would otherwise have done the most harm uh, because are, they depend much more in exploiting the forest. And then the indirect benefits go to perhaps people that are more in larger villages and so on, but they're still in the project area. Um, and in our experience in, in Colombia, what we've seen is that um, the, the local governance structure, if it is inclusive, and inclusivity is key, will have that sense they will have the sense of how to achieve that balance. Um, so it gets a little bit back to the question of Beto put in, the, in place, which is you have to help make, make the community more of the protagonist of the decision making. 
Sure, thank you. Joseph, do you want to have a go at that as well? I mean, you mentioned the number of jobs that have been developed in, my, in, my nom, my, um, in, uh, in Kenya, the Casago Corridor apologies, uh, project. How do you get that balance? How do you decide between specifically employing new people versus the community benefits for, you know, for everybody? Um, I think, uh, as uh, leaders say, it, you know, it comes, I think, uh, I'll say, like, uh, it's not automatic, but at least it's a way of you try to balance and make sure that uh, those uh, that 100% depend on the forest uh, and needs are catered, but also you, you zoom in to the other people who, you know, uh, depend on the forest directly or indirectly. Um, in our case, he, he, uh, most of the jobs that we've been able to provide, like, uh, for the forest rangers, a big part of them, they were poachers, converted to rangers. Uh, some were charcoal burners, converted to rangers. So you see, it, it comes automatically in a way. But again, you have to make sure that you make sure you are able to, you know, provide sustainable kind of um, activities and investment for all. Yep. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Any questions from in the audience here? No. Certainly, online audience, you're winning in terms of the question answering, <laughs> asking. Um, okay, uh, quick question. Um, and obviously, we're talking about projects that have a finite life. And we've, a couple of people have asked, what happens at the end of the project? What's, what's the end and what happens thereafter? Um, Tara, do you want to have a go at that one? Yeah, so through the project financing, we're investing in multiple different avenues of sustainable uh, income opportunities for communities. So the aim is on a, on a community level, on a landowner community level, uh, by the end of the project lifetime, there are enough sustainable industries working within the project area that once the carbon financing comes to a close, that there are other uh, income streams that are therefore available for everyone. So that's the main aim. Okay. Anyone else want to... Further comment from the panel? No? Okay. Um, oh, sorry, I'd like to make a sure. comment. Sure, of course. Yeah. So uh, our government in Cambodia has committed to renewing the contract at the end of the, of the period, project period. Th they understand that this is, we're not going to say in perpetuity because for those who want to develop economic projects, they are still hoping that the red forest will be fragmented and something will be given to the economy. But the government knows better, and they, they do shorter periods of contracts, but once the contract is finished, they renew. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Um, another question from online, um, and it's about um, some of the things we talked about earlier, the kind of security uh, point of view. Um, how do you ensure, when you're thinking about developing security for the projects, what are the key points in terms of respecting human rights locally? Um, and what sort of agreements have to be put in place to kind of ensure that those are respected? Obviously, a key issue when you're thinking about uh, training security guards. Um, leader, quick thought on that. What are the key I, points you'll be thinking about? I would say that, um, I mean, I, I think that, that, that this is a question that perhaps others can, can add more into. Um, in Colombia in particular, this is a, like a very highly developed area of, of legal, um, uh, legal clarity, if you will, and um, communities are very sensitive to, to human rights uh, because, of, and unfortunately, this is true also because Colombia is known for its unfor uh, uh, decades of violence and, and, and um, insecure conditions it's in areas like the ones that we work in. The... Um, the, nobody is, is uh, as sensitive to this as the communities themselves. 
because they have been the victims in Colombia for the longest time. They understand the value of human rights. Their human rights have been trampled for the longest time, and they have had some means, and I have to give credit to the Colombian government and to the many organizations, including international organizations that have been working in Colombia, but they have for the longest time had to fight to have their human rights respected. So when they go in turn and uh, put, uh, are, you know, are part of putting together the project, are part of putting together the forest ranger team, are, they understand keenly that human rights need to be respected. Um, so it is perhaps part of how the projects become kind of islands of hope in this ocean of problems sometimes in where we are. Because by having the communities like, be so much on the driver's seat too, it, it enables them to make that reality happen. Charlie, did you want to come in on that? I mean, I know these are issues that you have been dealing with in Cambodia. Yes. Um, actually, um, we respect uh, uh, the community members uh, in different ways. But, uh, for example, in uh, the Green Red Plus project, for example, for the patrolling activity, we also got uh, agreement from uh, the community members. For example, like uh, we have a specific place to patrol for a month. So we got an agreement and... We asked them to read about that very carefully and then later design. And they agreed that and design. That's the way that we respect them as well. And um, also, um, for example, for the customary right or the tra traditional rights, like in Red Plus Project, uh, for example, uh, in the, the Marine Red Plus Project, we have 14 community forestry, uh, community forests. So they have their own management plan. They have their own uh, management committee and uh, they got elected like that, and uh, kind of uh, election for for their community uh, committee, and also about the their management plan. So they have right uh, to to cut some uh, tree for for example for building new house for new couples. So that's the, the way that we respect them and we allow them to do that as well, but uh, with a uh, a good way, a great uh, monitoring from the officers as well. So. That's another example of respecting them. Karen, did you want to come in? Yeah, just um, on the kind of the human rights side, every every project is different. But for example, in the Cascal project, um, our rangers and the security team are all members of the community at large as well. Um, so that really helps when it comes to uh, relations with the, the wider community and uh, addressing any any issues that might come up. Which, with our team they're very uh, very carefully trained um, on human rights um, human rights violation possibilities um, and we we work to really make sure that that doesn't happen and we also have um, we're very sensitive to any grievances that might happen within the community so we have grievance mechanisms in place um, to make sure that anything that the community has to say is is listened to and heard okay we're coming to one project today. I want one very quick question which I think will be welcome uh, to our panel. Obviously, you've, you've been engaging our audience online because I've got a question. Several people have actually asked this. Um, how do companies invest in carbon offsetting for these projects? So people want to invest in your projects. So what, how do they go about doing that? What's the best thing to do? Uh, Lita, why don't you just give us a quick, just, what do they do? If people listening in want to invest, what do they do? Well, the first thing is to look at, at offsets and buy them. Um, and um, the, you know, the, the offsets might seem like a one-off mechanism but in fact, it's what keeps the wheel rolling. And you know, conservation is long-term, uh, community development, community progress is long-term, and uh, both of those things need a steady or an ongoing income stream. So as long as you keep uh, offsetting your own footprint and doing your part, 
to have a net zero footprint uh, in your life or in your corporate life. Uh, you're also doing your part to keep projects going and to keep the benefits flowing. Uh, so it's, it's the, best, the best that you can do in, in, in most cases. Okay, um, coming towards the, towards the end, I want to just, sorry, we are, we are coming to the end, I'm afraid. And we can continue the debate in the room after we, uh, we, our, our online audience leaves us. Um, but I want to come to our panel now and just ask them one thing to give us key thing they've taken away from the last 90 minutes of discussion. What was the one thing that um, they want our audience to remember and think about from the last 90 minutes or so? I'll come down the panel. Suana, you go first. Uh, maybe I'm repeating myself, but I would say that the most important part is if you're working in a corporation or even a firm, a smaller firm, is to buy the VERs from our uh, red projects so that the work on the ground can continue and can afford to do the forest protection. It's the most direct way to help to stop deforestation on the ground. That would be my point. Thank you. Brittany. Uh, yeah, I think uh, a great to buy the uh, carbon credit in order to have the uh, sustainable management of the, um, the area and also um, uh, provide the uh, income to the community and improve the livelihood of the local communities. Thank you. Charlie? Well, th thank you for having me here and to have my voice heard. And thank you so much. And uh, the Red Plus project is very important to help uh, the community members uh, to protect their, their rights, like what we said, and um, also helps contribute to the sustainable development goals like they get lots of benefits from the timber, building the houses, uh, building the things that they wanted, and also non-timber forest products. So lots of benefits for the community and also the whole world as well. Peter. Um, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit as well. I'm building on, on Suana's comment. Um, you buy the carbon offsets to offset your footprint of the last year. But when you're buying a carbon offset, you're keeping a project going that has a 30-year life, lifespan and the possibility of continuing beyond 30 years. Because yeah. we want to save forests for eternity. We want to save them for the long term. And you know what? Those same resources are what, what are needed to help communities improve themselves and create a new reality and reach their future dreams. They don't need help for three years. They need help for generations. Only a project of that long-term view can help communities truly achieve their potential, truly get to that level where they want to be. And that's the beauty of a RED project, because it has that long outlook. And each time, each year that you offset your footprint with our projects, you're helping that community reach those dreams. Thank you, Leader. Denise, briefly? Yes, uh, I would say uh, thank you, uh, first of all, to Evelyn for having us here. And uh, I'm happy to represent the Mindombe Red Plus project. Um, thank you to those who believe in Red Plus project. Everything you are doing is making a change in the community's lives. The collaboration of Red Plus supporting and uh, approaching you know the community and working together and the community protecting our forests and uh, to to conserve our environment is for the good of everyone and you don't 
know like how much these communities are willing or want to work together to make the change that we all need. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much indeed. Kara? Uh, yeah, just thank you again for the opportunity to talk today. And yeah, just to say we're really excited about continued engagement for, uh, from everyone here and uh, those in the audience um, in not just purchasing VERs, but just in sustainability in general. So yeah. Thank you. And, and Joseph? Uh, thank you. Uh, I think we are all sharing the same thoughts. Um, uh, what I'll say is that uh, we only have one planet, planet that is called Earth. There's no planet B. So <laughs> by supporting such initiatives like RED, then it means that you are saving the planet for ourselves and for the coming generations. Thank you, Joseph. It's never easy going last in a list of <laughs> things on <laughs> the planet. So thank you very much indeed. Well, um, <laughs> we, um, we have uh, we've run out of time. Many thanks indeed to our, our panel for taking the time to come here to Stockholm to share their experiences and insights. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to the team at our sponsors, uh, Everland, for facilitating today, and to Innovation Forum's Anita Thompson for making this all happen. Uh, do look out on the Innovation Forum website and podcast for some follow-up from today's discussions. I will try to cover all the questions we didn't get to online, and thank you so much for all those questions. We'll try to get to cover all those uh, in the follow-up podcast that, that we're going to be doing. But for now, many thanks to everyone here in Stockholm and online, and goodbye. Goodbye.